0: Hey, welcome to Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, the show that takes you on the deep dive of what's happening in and around the hospitality industry. Uh, so if you're new here, welcome. It's nice to see you. A little bit about me. I have been running the listareyouonit.com for the last 20 years. Oh my God, 20 years. It is the only DC food, wine, and hospitality uh, e-zine that happens in the area. We cover every event, every opening, and everything that is happening, the who, what, where, why, when, it is all in there. Of course, you hear me every Sunday on Foodie and the Beast with my husband, David. We have been doing that show for 14 years. Our 15th year is coming up. 1500 a.m. every Sunday, or of course, you can download that online. You follow me at NYCCI, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for all my eats and travels. And then, of course... Look where I am today at the gorgeous wine lair here next to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, one of the premier wine clubs here, private wine clubs, excuse me, in the D.C. metro area. So where have I been? Well, your girl has been dining out a lot in the past week, and I'm only going to give you a small preview. But I checked in at Nobu because they are launching a brand new omakase, sort of under the radar, but when it's up and running, you're going to be really glad I told you. Um, Allegory, they really go down a rabbit hole with their whole story about Alice in Wonderland and Ruby, and then they enact these cocktails that go along with it. Um, I was with the whole team, Deke and Capri, and they really, they execute a cool story, and the place is really swanky and kind of sexy. Um stopped in Bresca. I love a seat at the bar there. There is something about the hospitality at Bresca. It's like glowy and infectious. They're just so lovely there and i love sitting at the bar and letting zara just create me whatever cocktail she wants which was a truffle infused tipple of some kind it was really lovely and then the cute thing they do at the end is if they know you and you want them to know you they print up little um dog treats for your dogs with their pictures on it which i think is a nice finishing touch uh let's see where else was i oh i stopped at bammy's i wanted to see what peter prime was up to of course he is frying his chicken and frying his fish and they are both pretty good. Um, I went to Albi as well. Oh my God, I've been to so many places. Okay, so I went to Albi, I sat at the bar, I had Armenian wine that was just scrumptious. And then we did all the desserts because when you're there, you should do all of his desserts. That's Mike Graffiti. Little side note, Yellow in Georgetown is now open until 7 p.m. And they have a dinner menu, which you can take home. Uh, I went to King Street Oyster because they were on Foodie and the Beast last week and I had never been and I kind of felt bad about it. But I will say, even though it's not a place I'm suggesting you run to, they do have an amazing selection of oysters and they shuck them well and they are fresh and clean and they taste exactly as they're supposed to from the region they are from, which I give a lot of credit to because not all oyster places do that. Okay, I had to stop at Flight Wine Bar. I was really thrilled that I had the opportunity to go back in. It's been a while. They do really cool things. Their uh, tastings, their flights, are really well thought out and very intriguing. So if you're in the area, you should certainly go and see what they're doing there. And then lastly, I had tickets last night to the opening of King Lear at the Shakespeare Theater, which was... So emotional and so um, terrific, but I had to do dinner first. So I went to Oyamel because it's been a minute since I've been there, and let me tell you something. That place is busy, like. Crazy busy. And there's a reason for it. The food is really still good. I hate saying still, that's kind of mean, right? But like the food is good. And the guacamole is freshly made. There's a woman right up front just hammering away at it. Um, The tacos are still amazing. And the staff is joyful and, and lovely. And the place was banging so um a real shout out to them now if you've been following me on social media and you see me dining at all these places there is a method to my madness so if you know you know and if you don't then i can't help you okay so that's a little bit about where i've been and what i've been doing um now to my guest so i don't know when i first met chef nick stefanelli wait i'm introducing you don't talk yet (laughs) then you can talk so it was a long long time ago. We were both younger and a lot cuter. But um, I think it was when he was helming Ashok Bajaj's Biviana in Penn Quarter. That place opened with a major like flash. It was like one of the first like major sexy Italian restaurants to open in the area. Nick was putting out cause, like 15 years ago. There was not like, tons of Italian cuisine like there is today, and there's not even tons, but there wasn't a lot of high-level Italian uh, cuisine being served in the D.C. area. But what's interesting about Nick is that he took a leap of faith, he opened his own restaurant, he opened up this little oasis called Masseria in what is now known as Union Market District, but back then it was known as where? And um, Union Market had opened, but nothing else had, and uh, he created a real brand as with Masseria being the helm. We'll get into that. He took a bigger leap and opened a three-tiered restaurant called Oficina, which David always corrects me. Is it officina or officina 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 my Italian sucks. Um, and now he's got a whole bunch of other things happening. He has his own company. He's a real restaurateur, chef restaurateur. There's not a lot of them that do it well, and I'm very excited um that he's joined me today oh and i forgot to mention he has a michelin star so like you know no big deal but he's still here so hey how are you i'm good how are you
1: we actually met at maestro
0: oh my god did we really yeah fabio (laughs) trabocchi's maestro yeah
1: when i was working there it was six years at maestro
0: well let's kind of start there how did you get into cooking not the business of it but just food
1: so I went to the Academy de Cuisine mm-hmm. in Gaithersburg, and I started my internship with Roberto Donna at Galileo, and then I was the Laboratorio of Galileo, mm-hmm. and then from there I was at Maestro. I was there for five years, and then
0: okay, wait, you're yada 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 <laughs> a lot. So I mean, working with Roberto Roberto Donna in the early days, um, he that was a important land. For a chef like you, he was one of the biggest restaurant tours in the city. The Laboratorio, nobody was doing anything like that in the D.C. area. I used to take those cooking classes there mm-hmm. um, on those Fridays, which I just thought were the coolest things ever. So, like six, how long were you there?
1: I was at Laboratorio for two years. Okay, um, and did you
0: feel that it gave you? the foundation that
1: you needed. Oh, it was it was a great experience and that restaurant was a very special restaurant in DC. You know, it was there for 20 plus years. Um and Roberto started cooking in DC in 1979 and it's one of the people that allowed us to do what we're doing now, which is which has been a very big step and when we were doing a menu based on all, all the people who really established DC's food back in the 70s and 80s at Masseria who was sitting down talking to him about the dishes we were going to do. And he was telling a story about when he ordered basil the first time he got here. And he was like, I ordered a pound of basil and this plastic jug of sawdust showed up. Where he was so used to being in Italy. And you got a pound of basil where a lot of people now take advantage, take for granted the fact that we can just pick the phone up and the freshest and most beautiful things show up at our doorstep.
0: Or in our markets. So. No, it's a huge change. And I will tell you, I, I forgot that you were with Roberto Donna. But he is also who launched. um, I mean, he didn't launch it, but it is because of him that the list exists. There you go. So I know, isn't that amazing? Um, I owe him a debt of gratitude, uh, which I have given to him on multiple occasions, I must say. Okay, so you start with Roberto, you get your foundation there, and then you go and work for Fabio Trabocchi at Maestro in Tyson's Corner. So, I mean, at that point, Tyson's Corner is like outside the city. You know what I mean? It's not considered really part of the D.C. metro area. But Maestro was this real rare bird in a Ritz-Carlton hotel doing a real, um, I don't know the Italian word for it, but what it was it's a, it's a tasting menu.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, <clears throat> I remember when I sat down with the broder and it was, Time to move on to the next thing. And I was like, where should I go? And he was like, you either go to Citronelle, or there's this new place that opened up in Tyson's Corner called Maestro. I don't know the chef that well, but those would be the two places that I would say or you have to leave the city. Mm-hmm. And being Italian, I went to Maestro and started Plus, cooking. Michel
0: would have beat you up. <laughs> <laughs> he was really nice to me, but he wasn't really nice to a lot of people. <laughs>
1: Uh, and then I was there with Fabio for six years and left, and we moved to New York and did the reopening of Fiamma together. And then I didn't
0: know you did Fiamma with him. Mm-hmm. So wait, let's just talk about what he was doing at Maestro. I mean, Fabio is known now, obviously, for Fiola Mare and Del Mar and his Folina. Um, but Maestro was, you know, before people were doing like tweezer cooking, it was tweezer cooking. So can we talk about sort of what that added to your cooking knowledge and? how it sort of got your juices flowing for what you wanted to do? Because it was different. It was really Work, different than what Roberto was doing. Working
1: with Roberto, I got a great foundation in classical Italian. And then after that, going to Maestro, the kitchen was so international. There was a bunch of people from all over Europe that were cooking there. Mm. And you just had this, I mean, Cedric Montpellier and I worked together. Right. That, I mean, there was a there's a pretty big lineage of people that have come out of that kitchen that are doing things. And just having that creative flow of everybody on that team was was a really special time and place.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and we got to touch all kinds of beautiful ingredients and learn about things. It, it, was, it was a great next step that took everything to the next level. Now,
0: did he take you on R&D trips? Was that something that Fabio did? Because, you know, nowadays I think there's more of that. Was that big back then?
1: We were doing a lot of traveling for cooking and events, not oh. so much R&D stuff. Okay. Um, but we would always have we had similar to what we have at Massoria now, but we had a closure in January, a closure in July, and a closure in August, and a lot of those like I went one August for my summer vacation, I went to work at the French laundry, so you went and did stages on your on your time that you weren't working because you were continuing to push and drive and and continue to grow so you could bring back new ideas and new pieces and things as as we're all putting everything together. So. Well,
0: was he a big collaborator? Would you come back and be like, you know, I was at the French Laundry and this
1: was a You'd bring ideas and you would always bring up dishes and ideas and things would come into the menu. They tangent in, they tangent out. So mm-hmm. it was a, as a working atmosphere, it was a really great time to be.
0: Well, and plus when you were at French Laundry, that was probably like... I mean, not that it's still not at the height, but at the time it was...
1: When I staged there, it was after the first remodel in 2004, 5, I think it was. So So. it's
0: really like at its height in that it wasn't, I mean, there's just so many more restaurants now, I feel like, that are high level compared to 20 years ago. You know, financials are changed. People have more access, food network. You know, it's a more educated consumer out there than it was. Which
1: is great because when when I started cooking, DC was not known for its yeah. food
0: well so actually we can go down this rabbit hole a little bit before we continue more on you but i always use roberta donna Michel richard um and jean louis as examples that dc did have a dining core but the breadth and depth of the city was only this big I you mean, you didn't
1: have neighborhoods there wasn't the diversity there wasn't the exactly. the ethnic cuisines you know it's there's so many more beautiful restaurants that have opened up in the city since then that have you know these people set the foundation blocks, and then it's just kind of built and, built and built and built. Right,
0: but we also have the real estate now, right, and the people who will move into that real estate—the wharf, Union Market, where the Morrow is. I mean, all these areas didn't. I mean, what what was here? You went to maybe Capitol Hill, but really Georgetown, Dupont Circle. You were Circle. two blocks on
1: Capitol Hill. You were.
0: Penn Quarter didn't even exist thirty. You years were Connecticut ago.
1: Avenue until you got into Georgetown, and then that was pretty much it.
0: Right. Exactly. So, so it was a. I just. It's one of the things that I say when people... I know they're trying to give DC a compliment, but I always feel like it's kind of backhanded because I don't want not, to not pay our respects to the people who lay the foundation for the food scene here. Which is
1: interesting because, you know, now that with the Filotimo opening downtown, but like mm-hmm. downtown and a lot of these places have you lost say it again?
0: Because I know I say it wrong every time. Filotimo. Filotimo. But
1: downtown had really lost its draw because people were going into neighborhoods and expanding through the city which Mm -hmm. has made the city grow and give it its depth and diversity
0: Mm -hmm. well so before we get there so let's talk let's give let's give a shook a shout out because if i don't you know he'll get mad um so you go to bibiana Mm -hmm. or you help him you open bibiana
1: yeah came back from new york and then i opened bibiana with him in 2009 Mm -hmm. and Ran Bibiana for five years, and it was a well, great experience. And for
0: people who don't know, Ashok is sort of a rare restaurant where he opens up a restaurant and and the chef together, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he gives you that platform because he is not a chef; he's a restaurateur.
1: And it was a learning curve that you know was a new challenge for me because it was the first time I had worked for somebody that wasn't a chef that did it. Mm-hmm. It was somebody as a I restaurateur, mean, he
0: knows numbers, but. <laughs> He
1: wasn't in the kitchen trying to cook spaghetti with me. It was... So that dynamic was a really good learning piece, which is why today we're still friends and we sit down and we'll have drinks and dinner and it's it's still a great relationship and it's good to have him as a, as a friend.
0: But I think a lot of people would sort of wonder, like, so here you were at Bibiana. It was not your restaurant. You did not own it. But you were executing a menu that you wanted. Why take that next step? Why open something on your own what is what is the drive in a chef like you to be an owner as well what's the missing link
1: for me it was always i just wanted to have my own thing where it Mm -hmm. wasn't you know and then you take the you take that on to your shoulders as if you're taking everything on Mm -hmm. um So when you don't have to answer any questions, you have to answer all the questions. So there's there's the other edge of that sword that once you get it there, you start to learn and understand. And then it's, for me, it was a professional growth piece. And Mm -hmm. now we're here where we're at. And opening Masseria up was, it was everything on the table went all in for it and didn't look back.
0: Okay, but Masseria, so okay, Union Market, Because you and I had had conversations before then, you wanted to do something on H Street or I don't know, you wanted something somewhere. And I was like, dude, if you open up there, I'm not going. Like I was like, I don't know where that is. And obviously that was uh, a a bad statement on my part because I didn't have the vision to see what was happening in these neighborhoods. Um, And I think I came back to you and said, I think I'm wrong, but which is so rare. So don't tell my husband I said that, Um, but union market had been built. There was really, other than, there was they were slowly, I mean, I had seen, Jody and um, Scott, Scott or Steve? Steve. Steve, Thank you. Jody and Steve have done a big presentation before Union Market opened to about 20 of us. I don't know how I got a seat at that table, but I did. And they basically showed us, like, this is what it will look like. It will be the meatpacking district of DC. They bought 11 acres. They knew where the hotels would go. They had the whole thing planned out, and I was like, Okay. That's wild. And now when I go down there, I'm like, oh my God, they really did it 10 years later. It's amazing. And then to see what's happened beyond their plan, how other people have piggybacked on them is equally cool. But going back to when you opened up Masseria. So what was that? Nine years ago?
1: Uh, We'll be eight this year. So we opened in 2015.
0: So, okay. There was nothing there. And let's be honest. I remember... Parking at Union Market, walking over with Amanda, who owns Salt and Sundry, to come to Masseria when it opened. And I remember, like, walking down and the lights were strung up. But then when you made that turn, I mean, this is before La Coseca, before everything. I was like, "Do we need like a bodyguard <laughs> to get over to Masseria?" And the beauty of Masseria, if I may, is that you have no idea what's behind that door. So it's sort of, if you haven't had the pleasure of going, it's sort of gated up front. And you walk into a door and then you were really greeted by an oasis. So can you talk a little bit about the process of of building that? Because there was nothing like that. There's still nothing like that in the city.
1: We, uh, when I got approached by Eden's to do it, they said they wanted the diamond in the rough. They wanted to make this a fine dining restaurant. And I was like, and I said, (laughs) let's do it. And we gutted the building and then we started to design it and it was the experience of what it was. And I wanted to make it feel as if you were coming into my home, but at the same time we wanted to show rev we wanted to show where also we are in this space, Mm -hmm. meaning everything that's surrounding us. So it's, it's part Italian, it's part industrial, it kind of builds back into it. But the whole piece of building the walls was once you walk through those doors, You're somewhere else Mm -hmm. and forget about it all. You're coming in. It's our house and you sit down and that's what we wanted to do. And building the courtyard and the indoor outdoor seating, the bar, utilizing what the old warehouse was into what the experience is. So from a design and architectural standpoint, we were using a lot of the existing constraints as positives as opposed to negatives.
0: Mm. Well, I think that's a success. It is still one of my favorite patios. There's nobody who's doing anything like that in the city, and the tile is beautiful. It does have that rough, uh, industrial look, but still um, it's fi- a fine dining. I mean, it's your Michelin star, it's a fine dining.
1: It's the balance of refinement and rustic.
0: Yes, that is a, I wouldn't mean, use rustic, but yes, pretty much. Um, I want to get into your Michelin star in a little bit. I don't want to hit it just yet. But I do want to talk, so you open a masseria, to you know, great uh, raves and accolades. Um, it becomes a destination restaurant. And then you decide to go big. I mean, like really big, because Masseria is not huge. I mean, I'm sure it seats a lot with the pretty patio. But you go three-fours big in the wharf, sparkly, shiny. Talk about neighborhoods that didn't exist. This one literally, Monty Hoffman sprouted it out of the ground. And uh, you go for a three-floor you know, Italian Mecca, but it's a behemoth. So it's a it's a big bite.
1: It's actually not big enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it, we were we were talking about other spaces, and originally the building where Oficina is, is was supposed to be Todd Thrasher's building, our building, and the building next to us with falafel and oh, that the soda little... pop. It's mm-hmm. all supposed to be one thing, but it ended up getting cut up. And they asked us if... if we would do a stall inside of this market. So we started looking and going back and forth and we were already working on a market concept that we had. So we decided to take the restaurant in the market and put it together because I wanted to have the rooftop and not the promenade and mm. that building's rooftop so where, for me is... where the
0: building is, the promenade, you're blocked, right? You wouldn't <clears> have had <throat> access to the water.
1: Well, you're on the water, but it, you're with the foot traffic and all the pieces, I wanted more of the private. You could have the sunsets. You're not dealing mm-hmm. with all the hustle and bustle of all the foot traffic pieces, and you could be up there, and it turns into its its own oasis and for for us like that sunset that drops over the bridge is one of the most beautiful things in the city so
0: well also when you did that um it is beautiful but what i think is really fascinating is that for a really long time there was only one rooftop in dc at the hotel washington and then now You can't build a building without having a rooftop. But, you know, there was a real shortage of that, just like there was a shortage of incredible views in this city. You know, now so many restaurants can really tout whether they're high or low, whether it's a water view or a sunset. Views or what you were looking at was not a priority to real estate like it is now. You know, I think it's kind of interesting how people have added that on.
1: Yeah, it's... um... The city is ever evolving and changing, so mm-hmm. it's good.
0: Okay, so in uh, Oficina, you have uh, a market downstairs that's still there, right? Mm-hmm. But you put in a pretty laborious program. You bake breads.
1: We have our bakery there, which bakes for all the restaurants. Mm-hmm. We have our butcher shop, we have the market, retail wine store. <laughs> So all those bits and pieces that are there. So Oficina means workshop. So it was really highlighting all the work that goes into producing everything that goes into the trattoria and everything else that we have Mm -hmm. and putting it on sale. So the pieces that we're cooking with, you have the ability to buy as a a customer.
0: Okay. And then, listen, once people see that you have a track record of doing well, um, I did a whole show with uh, John Asadorian, and, I mean, we talked about how, like, You see somebody with a track record. You're like, hey, I got a deal for you. I got a deal for you. So now you start getting hit up by people, right? So uh, you do some other markets around town. And then do you have an idea in mind of what you want to do next? Or do you wait for people to come to you and be like, here's what I got? How does it work?
1: It's a little bit of both.
0: Okay. So tell
1: me more. So it's like with the Philotimo space, we were in talks to do a different space that was in the property. And we were going to do a pizzeria. And being half Greek and half Italian, I was on a wine trip in Greece as we were going through these negotiations. And I was exposed to a bunch of different things. And Mm -hmm. I came back and I was like, it's time to start a new challenge, to start on a different journey and tell the other side of heritage and give me something else to go into through research and just food Mm -hmm. and so i came back and i said i want to do a greek restaurant and this is where we want to take it and that's how philotimo was was born and then it was a three-year that a a three-year process that turned into a five-year process because because of covid right because of the pandemic
0: (laughs) right we all lost we all lost time so which is amazing
1: but you know we had a fire, which was an unfortunate incident, but now we're resetting. We started construction again, so we'll be reopening in the next couple months.
0: Remind people where that is. Because we're it's... at the corner
1: of 15th and L. Right. What's the name
0: is... of that building?
1: It's the Fannie Mae headquarters. It's the old uh, Washington, Washington Post, Post. building.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Dauphines is there. Dauphines,
1: Shoto, and Casa... Nona Grazia.
0: Nona Grazia, yeah. Um, but you also have a cocktail bar that's going to be there, right? Is it cocktail or wine? It's wine. Okay. Good,
1: I so, wine. <laughs> well, and it's also it, it. It was to give us a stage to start to tell the story of Greek wines because a lot of people, whether it's the pronunciation or not knowing about them it's or the whatever it is,
0: pronunciation, dude. You can't say I can't say. <laughs> I can barely speak English, let alone try speaking another language for real.
1: But there's so much beauty that's in this region that has mm. been not shown to people or just the lack of having it here from a standpoint of being able to experience it and that's how I got to Greece the first time because I was blind tasted on a wine and I was like there's no way because I thought it was something totally different mm-hmm. and they were like no this is Zeno and then I end up in NALSA learning about Zeno and then it just turns into this obsession of understanding all the bits and pieces and depth of the wine program in the regions and what's going on and the new talent that's producing stuff and everything that's going on—that—that that is what birthed what Philotimo is. So.
0: Oh, that's amazing! I think what's really um, interesting and probably from your perspective as well is being able to tell the stories through the beverage menu, and you know, now going to a restaurant like I mentioned, Albi, and you know, there's no California Reds on that wine list, and I. I love that. I know it can be intimidating to people because wine can be intimidating. But I think having that ability to go to a Greek restaurant and being totally flummoxed by a wine list and being like, I don't know what any of this is, but hopefully having a guide who can take me through it is very exciting.
1: Well, and that's the thing. Like The world of wine is so beautiful out there, and there's so many different varietals of grapes and experiences, and some are very similar to others that people like and love. And it's mm-hmm. just... You know, opening yourself up and saying, like, yeah, I'll try this different white. I'll try this. And then realizing, like, I love a Sertico. Mm-hmm. I love, like, these are really great wines. And it's different from drinking what you're normally used to drinking every day.
0: Well, you have to, the only way your palate grows is if you expand it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think that's a great lesson. I think so many people um, are afraid of wine. They're afraid, well, I don't like a California Chardonnay, they'll say. And I'm like, so what? If you... Taste it and you don't like it, send it back. Get something else. Like it's just food and wine. You know, if you take a bite of something and you don't like it, don't eat it. It's not gonna nothing is going to hurt you unless it's rancid. But there's no reason not to try it. And if you don't like it, don't eat it. Mm-hmm. You know, don't order it again. I mean, I I feel like the pleasure or the fun of food sometimes and wine. And cocktails even. It all sort of gets lost in sort of this hazy seriousness that is unnecessary.
1: And then you'll have somebody that'll go and they'll be like, oh, I just got back from Greece or I was just in Italy and I really love mm. this wine and, that- and I never thought I did. And now they're coming back and they're asking for it. So I love that. All right.
0: So now you're expanding to Greek, but is there some French in you somewhere that I don't know about other than, other than your love of Dom Perignon <laughs> or something like that? So
1: And white Burgundy. Right. Um, there's... I mean, being classically I feel like trained. Have
0: glasses <laughs> of white Burgundy. Okay, next time. So, being,
1: being classically trained French mm-hmm. at the de Cuisine. Sure. We were called at the beginning of the pandemic and were offered this hotel project that was coming up down the street from Masseria, and we had pitched it on the it. other
0: side of
1: Florida Canada, Avenue, right?
0: Right. So it's sort of in this area. For people who don't know, like when I drove there the first time. I was coming up from the Navy Yard, and I was like, where am I? I didn't know. I was like, what is going on? Where am I? Because I had not seen the expanded growth of the union market in that direction, which, I mean, obviously makes sense, but I just wasn't I just wasn't prepared for it.
1: I mean, it's crazy, because Masseria was closed for almost a year during the pandemic, mm-hmm. and when we got back and opened up, it was, I mean, there was a whole building next to us.
0: Right, right. <laughs> so it was...
1: <laughs> Wow, so I know exactly how you feel. Not to
0: mention all the residential that is near you now. I mean, Masa literally was by itself. Like, I, when I called it an oasis, I wasn't just no, no. being At like 4 generous. o'clock in the afternoon,
1: it was quiet, it, like you were in the countryside.
0: Okay, so just to be clear, because we didn't name it, this is at the Mara Hotel. Mm-hmm. It's called La Clue. Correct. And this is on the ground floor of the hotel. It's a pretty, you know, swanky, sort of mod-feeling uh, dining room. Um, and you're executing this, would you say brasserie is incorrect? Do you think it's higher end than a brasserie?
1: No, I mean, it's, for me, it's all the food that I love Mm -hmm. in the classic brasseries. But then there's also this new age of cooks that are coming out that are Mm -hmm. doing like Septim and places, uh, Bishra Chez Lamy. And it's, you know, you have all this different food that's coming out that's an evolution of what the classic bistro and brasserie is it's mm-hmm. going that i've seen living. that was just it's the next step right mm-hmm. it, and that's what we wanted to bring to the forefront for what we're doing at Le Clou.
0: Okay, so talk about the champagne cart and the cheese
1: cart. What? How do you want to integrate that
0: into the dining I experience? I want you to
1: eat and drink all of it. <laughs> well, the champagne cart's <laughs> going to be rolling around. We're going to do it's eight champagnes by the glass. So you'll have different variations. The cremants. You'll have the 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 grower champagnes, and then you'll have the big tête de cuvees. So you get to have the different experiences of it, whether it's at the beginning of the meal, during the meal, at the end of the meal. Mm -hmm. And then the cheese trolley for me, I just, I love cheese. And we're flying in a bunch of different French cheeses from around France. Um, Some seasonal, some staples. So really highlighting the beauty of what that is.
0: So they will be French. It won't be like local. It's specific French. French. Oh, I love that. Okay. But then um, you're not stopping there. Because you're a busy guy. So you're taking over the Morrow Hotel and opening up different things. So yeah, so we
1: were doing the whole entire hotel. We we're doing all the food and beverage operation for it. So we mm-hmm. have the restaurant, the Clue, we have in-room dining, the banquet program, and then we have the rooftop that's opening up and then Vesper.
0: Okay, so talk – because I've seen both. So talk the rooftop and what that activated once opened will look like and, um, and the non-pool not cool and um, can we talk about that because that's that truly stymied me for like a while like i talked to people about it <laughs> there's a there was going to be a pool up there and it's original
1: <coughs> it was a pre-design from the original hotel design that ended up
0: but it was like a, a bucket basically it was like you could put i could put my toe in there and it would be full that would be the end of it Um, so what is happening at the roof?
1: So as we were, as we were, it's upstairs at the morrow. Okay. Um, it's going to be open every day. And as we're talking about the rooftops, this rooftop for me is a great piece of DC Mm because you're overlooking the train station. You get to see the whole East side of the city, RFK while it's still standing. Mm -hmm. And then you see the monuments, the Capitol and everything else. So you get a full kind of 270 degree panoramic of, Mm -hmm. of what DC is. Um, and it's just going to be a great place to hang out. Is it just a bar? It's a bar, and it's going to have light Continental fare to it upstairs.
0: Mm-hmm. Just snacks or?
1: Snacks, a burger, okay. shrimp cocktail. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a place that you can start before dinner, come after dinner, kind of move your way through the hotel and go in and out.
0: And is the beverage program an extension of what you're doing downstairs? Like, is Le Clou basically an extension? I mean, is the rooftop an extension of Le Clue?
1: Whole different programming. Whole somewhere.
0: different programming. Okay. And then let's talk about Vesper, because mm-hmm. that place is pretty cool. So this is on the second to top floor? Where this is, is on it? the 11th floor, one okay. one
1: floor down. Because
0: mm-hmm. you would think that you would make the rooftop Vesper, because you know everybody wants a view, but you're doing something completely different here. So let's talk about the concept.
1: There was a space as we were going through the design of all the F&B outlets that would have been a club, could have been this, could have been private event space, and really didn't know what was happening, and Benjamin Seclair, who's one of the guys that worked I worked with on the project, was part of Faena when they opened up, and we went to go meet down there, and the living room at Faena is just a really beautiful place, and the inspiration of that music programming that happens there stemmed into the conversation over a glass of white burgundy that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that went into the creation of Vesper, and... Wanted to do something that starts to bring live music back to D.C., but in an intertwining, a DJ, and it can be a saxophonist, can be a violinist, could be a salsa band, could be the programming is going to vary so much back and forth. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a phenomenal cocktail bar. And then as we went through kind of the inspiration of what the room looks like, it was inspired by the Miu Miu store that I saw in Porto Cervo because it was one of the most amazing things. It's all blue with mirrors, and that came the inspiration piece for Inc to design it. And it's it's a really special and beautiful place.
0: So, how do people utilize it? Like, what's your vision? People go to La Clue, go up there afterwards. People start at the rooftop, go to La Clue, just go come to Vesper. to
1: Vesper. Just, I mean, it's and that's the thing. It's watching the evolution of how the hotel and the life all comes together is. Is going to be the fun process over the next six months to a year as it all comes comes into into full operation.
0: But I guess my question is, if you have live music and it's on the eleventh floor, is there any concern about like do you have to stop at a certain time because it's a hotel or because you're in a residential area? How I mean, does that AC/DC's work?
1: ACDC is not playing. It's, no, <laughs> so I know, but you know a, what I mean. Well, and Vespers closed. It's a closed room, mm. um, and then the rooftop is the rooftop so we're dealing with our normal noise noise issues mm-hmm. um but no it's just going to be a really fun place Vesper will have its own reservations its own dedicated page its own operation to it um it's what's the beverage seats. program
0: like what's the beverage program there like what's the is there food as well like what's the there's food Ovalon it's going to
1: be the food that's going to be in Vesper is going to be all grand hors d'oeuvres and caviar service it's more about place a place that you can come and have great cocktails and snacks to go along with it. It's okay. not going to be full dinner okay? because it's more of the vibe and the atmosphere of what's going on. Mm-hmm. So as we're putting the programming together, some nights it could be two showing, some nights it can just be all the way through. So it's going to have this ebb and flow of back and forth.
0: Cool. And then I think I recall you saying you were going to do a tea service.
1: And then tea will be Saturday, Sunday. So okay. 11 to 3. We'll do I champagne know. and tea service.
0: Right. You know I love tea. Service. Hi, T um, Can I ask a question though, about the addition of champagne with tea service? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know I love my bubbles, but like, if I'm drinking tea, why am I also drinking champagne? I don't get it.
1: So for me, tea and champagne on this in this atmosphere because music will also be involved because mm-hmm. that's the core foundation of the room. Mm-hmm. It's not just your classic tea service. okay. Because if you're gonna bring so four people, I should get a people, buzz.
0: I should get a buzz from the caffeine and from the bubbles. <laughs> I mean, what are you drink, suggesting? You here can now? drink
1: tea all day, okay. but somebody else might not want to drink tea. They can have champagne. So okay. you have the option because there's another champagne trolley for upstairs mm-hmm. that will be able to roam through the room as you're going through tea service.
0: Okay, I mean that makes sense, but it's it's a pairing that I see, and I'm always sort of. I'm always like, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, I'm happy to drink both, but I feel like I'm double fisting and it feels weird. Nobody's
1: saying you have to do both. I know, but I just, you know,
0: other. I'm not a rule follower <laughs> at all, but like, I'd like to know what's happening and why. Okay. So let's jump back a little bit. So we have all these businesses happening for you. Um, your growth has, you know, really in the last 10 years has taken off. You get a Michelin star. What is that like? I mean, was that ever something that you were like, one day I will X? Um, Was that part of the plan? I mean, DC didn't have Michelin until 2016, but once it was here, were you like, yeah, I'm getting that? I mean, tell me how that worked for you personally, and then I'd like to hear sort of professionally how how its effects manifest.
1: So when they announced the guide, I think It was June or May when there were, like, new guides coming out for D.C. And everybody at Masseria was, like, freaking out. And I was like, guys, like, either we did it or we didn't. Right. They've already been here. (laughs) Like, you're not writing a guide in two weeks, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's already done. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know what to expect. When we opened Masseria up, the whole goal was always to be – the best restaurant and focus on all the aspects of what we're going to do to make that and work on it every day. And that's what we've continued to do going forward. Mm-hmm. And there's always, and there's been, there's always a really great evolution. You know, that's why for me, when I go out to dine, I like to go back to restaurants that have been open five years, eight years, seven years. It's not just always like, Oh, what's the new restaurant that's opened up in the city or what's this? It's, Oh, I came here three or four years ago. Let's go back. And I totally agree with to that. See kind of for me from a, an R&D standpoint, it's like, okay, well, when I was here five years ago, this is what was happening, and now they're doing this, and you can see the evolution from the consumer standpoint and not just the operations standpoint and seeing like, oh, we're doing something wrong or we're doing something right, or maybe we should add this on or maybe we should do that, and that's always kind of the evolution for the spaces, and we just continue to push and drive every night.
0: But just to your point about going and seeing, I mean, if you heard about all the different places I've been going to, I always mix old and new because I think it's important to see how people evolve or if they're not evolving at all. Because I think some restaurants do get stuck. Um, Not because they think it's bad. If they're busy and they're doing well, God bless. But at some point, it shows either in the service or in the food if you're not growing. Um, I think. And then eventually it affects your business. But when you did get the award of the Michelin star, um, aside from being proud and excited and all those great things that go with it, how did that change your business? And how did that change? Like, what were the effects of it? Because I've heard from other people.
1: Oh, we got, I mean, we slammed. were we were busy. And then it just, we got just crazy busy, mm-hmm. um, which was great. And, there was the stress that then adds on to it once mm-hmm. all the dust settles and then the pieces and then you just kind of like work through like keeping the consistency and keeping driving and going and growing so it's you know it, there, well, was a, there was there was a learning it. there was a learning process and that you know the CEO of Michelin always says it's not a lifetime achievement award Mm -hmm. You have to earn it every year, so it's making sure everybody knows, like, you need to be on your P's and Q's all the time. Right.
0: Uh, Who is it? Uh, Guy Savoy just lost his... His restaurant is now uh, a two-star instead of a three-star. He lost a star. So um, I think that came out today. Um, So, no, you have to... You can't just rest on your laurels, right? Correct. So I think a question that a diner would ask, um, somebody not in the food world, somebody who's not a part of the industry, is like okay, chef, you have all these terrific restaurants, you're doing all these amazing things. Where are you? Who's cooking my food? So you were known as a chef, and now you're a restaurateur. There is a bit for people who, for somebody who doesn't go out to dinner every night, or doesn't go out to dinner often, but you know, masseria is um, an anniversary, or, or a special occasion, or even going down to the wharf or something like that. This is not their daily or even weekly to do. How do you explain to them what's going on in the kitchen if they think, "Oh, I thought Nick Stefanelli was going to be here"? How do you, how do you, how do you have that narrative and conversation? Because I, th- I don't think people understand that you can't be everywhere at once.
1: Well, and that's what I'm trying to get myself to be in a restaurant for a solid week every week because mm-hmm. I, I try to be in service every night that I'm mm-hmm. working, um, but then it's been like a bounce around game, which Ashok does really well. And for me, it's like, if I can't be in a certain place for enough time, I can't make the effects that I need to do in a kitchen. But every night I am in service in a kitchen. It's just the hard part is it's might not be in the kitchen you're in, but we have a great team of people that are around us that are driving it. I have a culinary director that helps me run everything from bits and Mm -hmm. all the, the pieces that need to get tied together and making sure that the focus is on the food and what's going on. And, It's putting the trust in the team of people that are going to be the next set of chefs and restaurant owners to make sure, like, I mean, they're going to go through their learning curves, right? So it's, Ashok trusted me at one point to run his kitchen, and, Mm -hmm. you know, those are the people that we're growing and educating to bring up to be the next people to run their next set of pieces.
0: Right. I mean, we can play six degrees of um, Ashok all day with people all around the city who have restaurants now. Maybe one day that'll be... You, if it isn't already. So the question is: Is do you elevate their names? Do you do you give the chef at Le Clou or whoever is executing at Masseria um, the platform? Mm-hmm. Or
1: and they have, I mean. They're in charge of a lot of the presentations for new dishes, what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then you go in, you give the structure, you give the guidance, like, no, we should change this, this should happen. So you're making sure nothing's going too far off the wall over here or there, but Mm -hmm. you're letting that creative spirit and collaboration piece come out. So it continues to build into driving what's going to take that next step in evolution.
0: Well, but at the end of the day, they are executing your vision. So how do you guide them with that? Well, you're putting
1: guidelines and parameters and, you know somebody who's running an italian restaurant is not going to come in and be like let's do this indian dish right Right. it's like they know where they're going in and they understand the soul and the philosophy of what's happening so then the bits and pieces come in Mm -hmm. right and it could be a new ingredient it could be a new technique it could be something we haven't seen before and that's you know it's always been the avant garde of how we try to stay playful with things and bringing new dishes in and pieces where it's like the linguine with exo at masseria where it's I went to China to cook. I learned how to make exo sauce, and I was in love with it. And, and now you I, can't
0: take it off the menu. <laughs> I put
1: that into Italian cuisine for one of my favorite pasta dishes. And so you have this ebb and flow of of culture and people and ingredients that, mm-hmm. that comes in, and that's the techniques that build into new dishes and creation. So there's always going to be that piece that's always happening. And, you know, there's failures and there's successes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, Renee Redzepi was – doing this big series on Instagram where he's like, these are the dishes that didn't make it to the Noma menu showing like, yeah, we failed 600 times to get to this one piece that we did. And it's you, you learn from the mistakes you taste. You're like, Oh wow, that didn't work. Or Mm -hmm. we need to do this a little bit differently and then continue to move on from it.
0: And then how do you extend that into the hospitality or vibe that you want in the restaurant? Um, I mean, Aside from the massive staffing shortages that still exist, um, not just locally in the DC market, but all around the country. How do you train your staff at each of these locations the sort of what the experience should be for every diner? Like how do you how do you affect that?
1: It's a daily thing that happens in lineup, it happens when you're interacting on the floor, it happens in family meal. There's always a constant build-in and when new people come in having the people that have been a part of the team help mm-hmm. to grow them and bring them into understanding what's going on here, the nuances of why something is done this way as opposed to that way, and mm-hmm. you know. And then some people that come in from other restaurants or from other professions are able to bring in different ideas that can be integrated into different things.
0: Mm-hmm. But is there an overall is there an overall feel at all of your restaurants and spaces right now that you're like when people come in here? they're going to know it's a Nick Stefanelli restaurant because of X. Is there something that you think is happening or that you're trying to feel so that it has that feel? Or you're like, no, no, no. Everybody comes into each restaurant and has their own experience in it.
1: No, I think music's a big piece of what we do. Mm -hmm. The touches on the table. I mean, napkins are a very big pet peeve of mine. So the linens that we purchase, it's – and then there's just the small touches, whether, I mean, when we open a new space up, we must go through like 600 water glass samples because it's like, what is that right water glass? Is the color? How does it look when it's set on the table? What is, what does it feel like in the hand? How does it, but you want them all to be different too. You don't want it to feel like you're walking into the same space. So mm-hmm. everything has an evolution to it.
0: Well, and I will tell you what I do appreciate because not all restaurants do this and it's such a pet peeve of mine. If so, every listen, all the servers at all the restaurants around the city are really eager to give you your water, which I love because I drink mass quantities of it, but I prefer sparkling. And there are a lot of places, and I know it's a money thing, but they don't have different glasses for sparkling versus flat. Or, I mean, it's just as simple as putting a coaster under it, but a lot of places don't do it. So, an over eager server just, you know, just, just, just pours spark, something like, into something no, else. Or <laughs> miss, that's um, something else. So, anyway. Um, I appreciate the attention to detail. All right, so um, I think we're done here. Okay, we hit it. We did a good job. All right, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you either on Instagram and where they can check out all your restaurants.
1: Instagram is Nick Stefanelli, and then all of our restaurant pages: Masseria, officina, Filotimo, and Le Clue. And. You can come to all the restaurants every night of the week.
0: Oh, and when is Vesper opening and when is the rooftop opening? Rooftop
1: opens March 21st. Vesper is opening in May.
0: Okay, terrific. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I loved going down this kind of like rabbit hole with you on everything. All right, I have to do my last like wrap-up here. I just have to find what I need to say. Okay, so... Everything you heard here today can be found on the list, you want I mean, no duh. Uh, and you can follow me Am my eating and my travels, because let me tell you, I am doing some amazing travels coming up, and you definitely want to follow it, at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, and don't forget, uh, LinkedIn as well. We're showing all the shows on LinkedIn. And now you can also download this podcast on every podcast platform and check us out on YouTube see what else we have so much going on it's so exciting Did i miss anything i don't think so um okay so please subscribe follow me on insta and uh be kind out there because it's rough have a good week
1: produced by
0: heartcast media